Welcome, everyone, to episode 93, Blood Brain Barrier. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Daylon James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Daylon? I'm all right, I guess. I don't know how I feel about all these barriers. We're throwing up all these barriers in the world and the political and the elite and the everybody else. And Build a wall. All of that. Come on with the barriers. I mean, can we just break down this blood-brain barrier? Let's come together, <laughs> blood and brain. That's right. Pink Floyd would be in there with you. Break <laughs> down the blood-brain barrier. Well, yeah. Maybe that's not such a good thing, though, huh? The, bar- the blood-brain barrier is good, right? It's protective. Is it a good thing? It's good. Okay. It's good right. until right. things go wrong. And then. So, this is a positive blood brain barrier episode yeah. we're talking about here. No walls. Of course, it is. No, this isn't a real, I mean, it's a barrier, but it's not a real barrier. It's a permeable barrier. Permeable. There you go. Using the science words. All right, everyone, let's get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. Of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so new episodes automatically download to your phone. All right. Well, we've got a great show today, and we're going to discuss the latest science and stem cell news, and we'll be interviewing Dr. Clive Svensson about his recently published work reporting the use of an IPSC blood-brain barrier model for neural disease. But first, let's round it up. You ready, Dalen? I'm almost ready, Kiki. You get ready. But before we do that, we'd like to remind our listeners of one of Connexon's original newsletters, Mesenchymal Cell News. Covering both in vivo and in vitro research, Mesenchymal Cell News keeps subscribers current with the latest publications, industry and policy news, as well as jobs and events related to MSC research. Join more than 4,000 subscribers and almost 3,000 Twitter followers for free at www.mesenchymalcellnews.com. All right, Kiki, shoot. All right, I'm going to round it up first with... A little science funding news. Uh. Yeah, so there's a new administration budget we're looking at. And under Trump's 2018 budget proposal, federal research spending in all three areas of science funding would decline severely. The budget was request from the president was delivered to Congress on May 23rd. And this is really presenting the clearest picture yet of how he prioritizes federal science spending. And some science and technology programs and agencies are going to see their funds increase, as we ta- we've talked about before on previous episodes. But the administration recommends extensive cuts to basic research overall. And total federal research spending is going to be slashed, if this goes through, by about 17%. Rush Holt, CEO of AAAS, said in a conference with reporters, if the White House budget plan were to become law, it would devastate America's science and technology enterprise. For many science agencies and programs, things are looking eh, really not rosy at all. NIH's health budget is going to be cut 22%. National Science Foundation is going to face an 11% cut. NIST 
that includes cybersecurity and nanotechnology is going to look at a 23% cut. The EPA's Office of Science and Technology, hack, 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 cut, cut, cut by 37%. CDC is going to take a 17% cut. The FDA, and this doesn't include revenue from user fees, will potentially be cut by 30%. The NIH's overall budget would fall from the 2017 level of $34.6 billion to $26.9 billion, taking out $1.2 billion from the National Cancer Institute, $672 million from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, $1.1 billion from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and $421 million from the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. Hack it up and burn it down. They're really killing us over there in this administration. I mean, I, I always thought though this is a non-starter. He throws out all these proposals, and everyone's like, "Yeah, okay." It's like your five-year-old is like, "Yeah, what he said," but really, yeah. what we're gonna do is. And, and what, what's the deal there? Are we should we we worried? I mean, I'm worried, but should I be panicking? I don't think you should be panicking just yet, but I think there is definitely cause for concern. And if you want. Federal funding for scientific research to be maintained at least at current levels. Talk to your congressman. The Congress is the one that actually okays the final budget. So you need to call your congressman, call your representative, call your senators. Let them know what you think about the funding of science and what their priorities should be because they are going to potentially take the lead from the presidential priorities, but not necessarily because they have their districts to be thinking of and their constituents to be thinking of. For sure. Yeah. Hey, even if you're not funded by science people, if you care about science, call somebody, please. Call somebody. I mean, and we're talking about the science side of things. The presidential budget, it really, it cuts everything except for defense spending for the, for the most part. It cuts education. It cuts disabilities, it cuts social programs, it cuts everything and then takes all that money and it's like, hey, we're going to give it to defense. So let's call our representatives, congressmen, tell them what we think is important. Yeah, you know something that is important? If we can't hack it here in the United States, maybe we really need to be thinking about taking a trip, going someplace else, like even mm. off the planet. And what? <laughs> and one of the concerns about humans traveling off planet is how are we going to reproduce if we're constantly bombarded by radiation in space? What's going to happen to our gametes? What's going to happen to the sperm and the eggs? Are they going to be genetically damaged in a way that would make reproduction in space impossible? Can we go to Mars? Can we go to the moon? Can we go to Alpha Centauri? Well, a new study out in the May 22nd issue of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences suggests that, hey, this might just be possible. I mean, at least if we're if we freeze dry the sperm, it might work. <laughs> <laughs> Japanese researchers freeze dried mouse sperm and sent it to the International Space Station and it hung out there for nine months orbiting the Earth in microgravity, being bombarded by solar radiation. Hmm. When it came back, the researchers rehydrated the sperm, checked it out, looked at the DNA, found that there actually was evidence of DNA damage. So there were mutations that took place compared with sperm that had been freeze-dried and rehydrated here just on Earth, and um, as a result, received about 100 times less 
solar radiation than the sperm at the space station. But the researchers said, okay, even though we've got this genetic damage, let's actually see what happens when we try to fertilize eggs. They fertilized eggs, mouse eggs in the lab, injected those into female mice. The mice, after going through this IVF situation, had normal baby pups. Space pups. Space pups. Well, they're Earth pups having been spermy space pups. Yeah. Anyway, the babies were healthy. They were even able to have their own offspring. A lot of the DNA damage thus is possibly repaired. And they think that there may be mechanisms within the egg that repair a lot of this damage in the process, or maybe there are epigenetic controls that maintain some viability. This is proof that the aliens that are were our forebears, they were reproducing in space. Why would we have repair mechanisms for space if we didn't come <laughs> from space, Kiki? Think about that for a minute. That's a great question. <laughs> no, it's not. That's a dumb question. <laughs> well, the question now, so now we know that the sperm can go to space. Maybe human sperm can as well. We don't know, though, what's going to happen to eggs. I mean, if eggs are the ones that have the repair mechanisms in them, if the ova are the ones that can fix the sperm, what happens if ova mm. go to space? What happens if they're damaged by solar radiation? What then? That's a major bottleneck to having babies conceived in space. And then there's also the, the getting to space part, which is also pretty tough. Companies are working on that. That's, <laughs> yeah, I, I figure that's part of the puzzle. It's getting there. We're getting there. We're close. But another awesome study looking into just how we are put together genetically. Researchers published in Nature Genetics, a new study sifting through the DNA of about 80,000 people. They found 40 genes that might be related to intelligence, bringing the total number of possibly known intelligence genes to 52. Many of these genes play roles in brain cell development, and studying them might ultimately help scientists understand how intelligence is built into brains. Neuroscientist Richard Heyer of University of California, Irvine, says that intelligence research has been quite controversial. Scientists have disagreed on whether intelligence could actually be measured. If so, whether genes had anything at all to do with the trait as opposed to education and other life experiences. And he says, we are now so many light years beyond that, as you can see from studies like this. This is a very exciting and very positive news. Study co-author Danielle Postuma, geneticist at VU University at Amsterdam, she and her colleagues combined data from 13 earlier studies on intelligence. Some of them have been published and some of them were unpublished studies, again, underscoring conversations that we've had on the importance of unpublished data. Postuma and her team looked for links between intelligence scores measured in different ways in the studies and variations held in the genetic instruction books of 78,308 children and adults. This genome-wide association study, GWAS, looks for signs that certain quirks in people's genomes are related to a trait. And so they found particular versions of 22 genes. About half of them were not previously known to have a role in intellectual ability. Another technique identified 30 more genes. And many of the 40 genes are thought to help with brain cell development. One example is the Shank 3 gene, which helps nerve cells connect to other nerve cells. 
And altogether, these variants that were identified account for only about 5% of individual differences in intelligence. So even if these genes that they've that they've found are confirmed as relating to intelligence, it only explains this tiny, tiny sliver of why some people have higher IQs than others. What's up with the brain development? But researchers, you know, want to know what the genes are and what mutations and variants might be involved because, as Richard Hayer says, if we understand what goes wrong in the brain, we might be able to intervene. Wouldn't it be nice if we were all just a little bit smarter? Wow. I don't know about that last part. I like the, the first part of the last part. Yeah, I like the intervention. If something's going wrong, let's try and fix it. But yeah. yeah wow. I don't know. That's mm. a bit of a disconnect between wouldn't it be nice if we're all smart? Maybe, I guess. But if we were all a little bit smarter by this kind of engineering, that seems like a scary scenario. But I think the, the emphasis there on the previous point that, you know, it only accounts for 5% of individual differences. So it's not like any of these genes is a magic bullet. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely not. And, you know, if we all want to be smarter, we should go to school in Finland. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, <Yes>. that's... <laughs> Just move to Finland. <laughs> Who cares about genes? Yep. Go to Finland. <laughs> I think that the big point is that it's more so trying to figure out what's going wrong to be able to help people with disorders that really affect their brain function, as opposed to that little tiny percentage increase in general intelligence. Yeah. Not to mention, I don't think, I think that sounds easier than it is practical to make <laughs> yourself, maybe it's correlated, but how do you get that done? Anyway, interesting stuff. Um, it's not going to, I don't need it. I'm very smart, Kiki. I'm very, very smart. You're very, very smart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Final study. A lot of people are prescribed statins to help lower their cholesterol levels in the blood. And there's this idea that lowering cholesterol levels, we can help prevent heart attacks and strokes. And there are studies that are showing that in certain people, statins do reduce the risk of heart attack, stroke, and even death from heart disease by about 25 to 35%, which is significant. Studies also show that statins can reduce the chances of recurrent strokes or heart attacks by about 40%. Again, very significant. But for people older than 75, the benefits of statins are just kind of unclear. And this is the result of a new analysis published in JAMA Internal Medicine. Statins in, in this analysis did not reduce heart attacks or coronary heart disease deaths, nor did they reduce deaths from any cause compared with people not taking statins for this age group. Recently published guidelines cited insufficient data to recommend statins for people older than 75 who don't have a history of cardiovascular disease. And this new analysis considered a subset of older adults enrolled in a study of heart attack prevention and mortality from 1994 to 2002. It was a sample of almost 3,000 adults ages 65 and older, and about 14 to 1,500 of them took a statin. And there really was no meaningful difference in the frequency of heart attacks or coronary heart disease deaths between those who took statins and did not. No significant difference in deaths from any cause, which also, I guess being any cause, would include falling in the bathtub, both overall and among participants 65 to 74, or those 75 and older. So statin use may be associated, there are risks, statin use may be associated with muscle damage and fatigue 
which for older adults could put them at higher risk for physical decline. So it's that cost-benefit analysis, you know? Is this really going to help reduce your risk of death from coronary disease? Are there going to be other problems that could be popping up as a result of just taking the medication? Yeah, I mean, these things aren't cheap. And the, the side effects and how many people do you need to treat to avoid a, a negative outcome? It seems to me like this is maybe pulling back a little bit of the money grab from these pharmaceutical companies. And for the best, we don't need to be selling all these drugs to these people. They're not really helping. Come on. Yeah. And for people who are younger, maybe have had a heart attack or who have risk factors, yes, the statins will help you. They will help reduce that. But maybe there's a certain point where that is diminishing returns. Smart treatment, people. Let's treat them smart. Yep. Let's be smart. Well, I'll tell you what's smart. Nobody knows, really, to be honest. I'm getting into it now, Kiki. You ready? I'm ready. Round up, roll. Let's do it. Coming. Round up and roll. I'm going all New York stories today. Can you believe it? New York is a hotbed of science. Clearly, I'm going all New York. The first one coming out of my very own Wild Cornell Medical College. It's a story about identity. So how do we know who we are, what we are? It's a complex question. With cells, it's maybe even more complex, but at least we can get some mechanism into that, insight into that. But the bottom line is a cell, especially pluripotent cells, they have this capacity to form all types of cells, right? So it's really important that they maintain their identity when they're meant to and they don't when uh, they're directed to form whatever tissue type. This is really especially important during mitosis because the regulatory landscape, the epigenetic situation there that's master regulating the gene expression that dictates identity during mitosis, the daughter cells, you want them to be the same as the cell of origin, right? Especially with pluripotent self-renewing cells. But during mitosis, the system, the whole control regulatory landscape is disrupted as the DNA is packaged so it can be split evenly. And this creates a window when a cell can, quote unquote, forget its identity and transform into a different kind of cell. So in this new paper by Dr. Afia Pasalu at Wild Cornell Medical College, she and her team found that cell identity is preserved in pluripotent stem cells through a series of these epigenetic bookmarks on cell genes. And they don't change during mitosis. This is the key regulator. So to quote Dr. Pasalu, so when the cell resumes its function, such as transcription after mitosis, this bookmark serves as a checkpoint to make sure that the process happens properly. So the way they went about this is they depleted the particular regulatory protein during this critical window in mitosis and showed that if you took it out, these cells would lose their identity and the identity would be challenged and they'd form some downstream regulators. So it's an important move forward in understanding what controls cell identity, especially in pluripotent stem cells. And I think it's important also, not just in understanding how you self-renew, but if you have cancer stem cells, for instance, in the system, you want to understand how you can get them to stop self-renewing. So disrupting these kind of epigenetic bookmarks and disrupting the, the regulatory landscape during mitosis could be a means of dysregulating this cancer stem self-renewal and being a means of treatment for cancer. So not just pluripotency and differentiation, but also may have implications for cancer stem cells, Kiki. A big move forward, first of four out of New York City. What do you think? 
I think stuff like that is, this is so neat. I mean, over the last couple of decades, it's just been exciting to watch our understanding of epigenetics unfold. And this kind of understanding that, you know, these little markers on the, the DNA can actually, it changes the folding of the DNA. It changes the way it's all knotted up, what's exposed, what will get transcribed. And so that is going to determine also the identity of the cell. And so it's just interesting to start making a list and what are the bookmarks? You know, what are the chapter headers for each identity? So neat. Big, big move forward with the human genome project. Then we realize, you know, having having the text isn't enough. There's all kinds of edits and regulatory overlays on that text. So we're getting there. We're getting there. Especially important when you're talking about these dynamic cell types like stem cells, yeah, which have a lot of potential to do a lot of different things. And on that note, I'm going to my next New York story. This one's out of the NYSEF, New York Stem Cell Foundation Research Institute talking about differentiation, okay? So we want to differentiate specific cell types. One of the most important targets for differentiation is microglia. These are known as the immune cells of the brain. And this group from Valentina Fassati has developed a protocol for efficient and robust differentiation of microglia. And this is really important because these microglia are increasingly implicated in neurological disorders, including Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, and others. And this protocol enables scientists around the world to generate this critical cell type from individual patients and improve our understanding of uh, microglia and neurological malfunction. So just to give you a little bit of a backdrop here, the individual patients is the key here because mm -hmm. the NICEF, they're really focused and they're coming with all these methods that are high throughput. They developed a technology for generating IPS cells from patient samples on a massive scale. We reported earlier how they're partnering with, uh, I think it's uh, the Church Lab at Harvard, uh, or the Broad, to, to generate this massive repository of sequencing of, of human IPS genes. And here you can see they're trying to take it to the next level as well by developing tissues from these patients so they can get at these kind of arcane questions. What is it in these kind of uh, sporadic or unappreciated or unexplained cases of disease, particularly these that may have an environmental component, what is it about the patient background that may be contributing to disease? And how can we use IPS cells from a vast array of patients to develop uh, protocols and, and therapeutics for these individual patients? So I mean, kudos to the NYSEF. They're really scaling it up, going from basic science all the way to the technology and translation of these uh, therapies, and they're really doing it at, at the ground level. So another great study from them, New York City represent. <laughs> represent. What do you think? You got to come over here to New York, Keek. Over I there on the know. West Coast. They don't gotta, I mean, they got it going on. I know CIRM in California is coming to yeah. the end of its funding. And, but New it's York over. is, yeah, is We're booming on off. the research. Yeah. This stuff, the, uh, the IPS cell lines, I think is so interesting. I mean, we've talked before about having kind of a general genotype that's a bank for people to have tissues that kind of generally won't be rejected by their bodies. You know, it's kind of, maybe you have like four kind of general phenotypes that people kind of fall into those categories. But this here is very much more specific and really getting into individual differences that could drive the dysfunction that leads to things like multiple sclerosis. And 
you know, we're, we're looking at stuff like, okay, multiple sclerosis, it, it's kind of a catch-all for this autoimmune disorder, but we don't know in certain individuals whether what the cause is. You know, what exactly is going on in this individual who lives in Marin County versus this other individual who lives in West Virginia? So I think stuff like that's going to be, it's, it's going to drive the understanding much more. Won't be long, Kiki. We yeah. got this personalized approach and it's bearing fruit. Well, another New York study. Again, this one's out of Wild Cornell, uh, New York Presbyterian Wild Cornell Medical Center. But hey, same thing. We're very, very smart over here, as I alluded to earlier. Uh, well, the other people here are at least. I can't really speak for myself. <laughs> this study, it's about HIV. Okay, you know, HIV now, it's become like a chronic condition, which is great. I mean, it's not, it'd be better if it were cured or if we could avoid getting it altogether, especially in, you know, Africa. It's much more of a problem where treatment isn't as effective or uh, available. But there's Elements of HIV that are still relatively underappreciated, and the research study out of the Crystal Lab was addressing emphysema, okay? Emphysema in the context of HIV. So like I said, HIV is like a chronic condition, but the viral reservoir of HIV remains in the lungs. I mean, the viral reservoir in the lungs and other tissues, but particularly lungs, cause serious side effects, uh, one of these being emphysema. So what the, um, the study was, it was showing that HIV may cause emphysema when it bonds to manipulates airway stem cells. So this may be the, the, what's underlying this side effect here. What they did is they collected basal cells from the, the lungs of healthy non-smokers, exposed them to increasing levels of HIV, and compared the results with the control group that wasn't infected with the virus. And they found that this one enzyme, MMP9, matrix metalloproteinase 9, which can break down and destroy proteins and destroy the tissue as a byproduct of that is increased with increased dosage of the HIV in the infected cells. So citing previous data showing that MMP9 is present in lung areas affected by emphysema patients, they kind of made the link that HIV could be a cause for disease by increasing production of these proteases. So to quote Crystal, our next step is to conduct additional research to determine what the preventative therapeutic target might be. And then, since basal cells are so important to normal lung anatomy and lung function, determine the other side effects of this reprogramming. So we may be able to cross emphysema off the list of unfortunate side effects of HIV, although, you know, I think it, we're going to need a multi-pronged approach that's going to decrease the viral load as well as dealing with some of the off-target side effects, both of the therapy, these protease inhibitors, as well as the side effects of these, you know, increased viral reservoirs within the tissue. One more pill or two. Yeah. I mean, yes, exactly. People who are infected, they're not taking enough medications already. The multi-drug oh, cocktail just yeah. got a little bit richer. Well, somebody is going to be cashing on this. But, you know, it's, it's not a, a small thing. People think of HIV now. No one's really focused because the kind of acute risk of HIV has been mitigated. But yeah. Oh, this is a chronic condition that is not pleasant, even when well treated. Yep. So, you know, considering how the group of, of people affected by this disease is ballooning, even in first world, it's nice that we have an approach for addressing some of the complications. Until we find a treatment to get rid of the virus entirely. We're getting there. Got to have a stopgap, right? We're getting there, yes. though. Although it's not very well covered, people are still working on HIV, you know? Mm -hmm. It's still out there, and people are still working. So 
keep on going, guys. Yeah. We're not done with that yet. And last but not least, a story out of New York, out of my Wild Cornell again. Hey, three out of four ain't bad. This is from my mentor, too. So this is, you know, very near and dear story that's been well covered in the media reprogramming of adult endothelial cells into repopulating hematopoietic stem cells. The reason I mention this study is because we're trying to get uh, Shaheen Rafi and the, the first author, Raphael Lise, on the show, and I'm hoping that by giving them a little coverage, we'll convince them and we'll get them here to talk <laughs> about their important study. Yeah. I'll bottom line it here because we're going to get them in here. Hopefully, Shaheen, you better come on. You owe me big time, boss, to talk about how... This is a, a major impact. This isn't specifically pluripotent stem cells, but this is hematopoietic stem cells, the holy grail of immunology and treatment of a lot of diseases, including the aforementioned HIV. We could cure HIV if we could reliably get patient-specific hematopoietic stem cells that are genetically engineered to not have the entry receptor for the HIV virus. That's just one in a long list of applications that a reliable source of hematopoietic true hematopoietic repopulating stem cells would afford the research and, and clinical community. So just to be brief, what they did is they took in the, in the mouse to show proof of concept, they took adult endothelial cells, they showed that they could directly reprogram them into these repopulating hematopoietic stem cells that could then engraft into secondary tertiary recipients living on in mice for over a year and that they could form the entire repertoire of blood and immune cells that will be essential for developing a whole number of therapies, including chimeric antigen receptor and T-cell-mediated therapy for cancer and others. So I really hope we can get Shaheen and Raphael on the show to talk about this and how it stacks up to another development out of Harvard, although I didn't cover it because I'm doing only New York today, out of George Daly's group, which did a similar thing using human pluripotent stem cells as a source of originating material. So we're going to get Shaheen on. We're going to get him talking. And he's not a mild-mannered fellow, so that should be exciting. Kiki, I mean, can you rally him to talk to Shaheen? Tell Shaheen to come on the show. That's right. I'll just get on the phone, call him up, say, hey, Shaheen. Hey, <laughs> hey. <laughs> come talk stem cells with us. Come on. <sighs> yes, yes. Keep it appropriate, though, you know. He's got, I mean, not to mention you've got your own little boy, but he's got, he's got two twin boys my oldest age, and they are a handful. Oh. You know I keep things appropriate. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's me who doesn't keep it appropriate. Yeah, you're the Sorry. one we have to worry about. <laughs> Not you. I meant me keep it appropriate. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, we're going to get him on, and we're going to talk about hematopoiesis. We love the blood at the podcast, don't we? Blood. Yes, we do. Blood. <laughs> blood. That's me. That's it. That's all I got for the roundup. Kiki, let's get on with this show. Okay, so before we get into our interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to let us know about a product line called iCell from Cellular Dynamics International, or CDI. iCell, human iPSC-derived products exhibit functional characteristics similar to those of native human cell types and can be used as physiologically relevant models in a variety of applications, including drug discovery, toxicity testing, and regenerative medicine research. ICEL differentiated iPSCs are derived from a single iPSC line, and large batch sizes ensure consistency across multiple experiments. The ICEL product line includes DOPA neurons, 
and glutaneurons, among other cell types. And these dopaneurons and glutaneurons are highly pure, fully differentiated populations of dopaminergic and glutamatergic neurons, respectively. If you want to learn more, here's the website you need to visit. Please visit www.stemcell.com slash dopaneurons or www.stemcell.com slash glutaneurons. Yeah, go to the stemcell.com, put a slash in, dopaneurons or glutaneurons if, you know, for specifically the area of your interest. I like dopa. Dopa. Dopaneurons. I like my dopa. Get some dopa in you. Yeah. I want to keep my dopaneurons and glutaneurons working well. It's really important. All right. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Dr. Clive Svensson. Dr. Svensson is the director of the Board of Governors Regenerative Medicine Institute and professor of biomedical sciences at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Svensson's lab uses stem cells to investigate neural disease. One focus of his current research is to derive cells from patients with specific disorders, which can then be reprogrammed to a primitive state and used as powerful models of human disease. The other side of his research involves cutting-edge clinical trials, and we are thrilled to have Dr. Svensson join us to discuss his work and most recent publication. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks very much. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and the focus of your lab's work? Well, yes, I was very happy to. I'm a British-born person uh, initially and uh, did my PhD in England and then uh, moved stateside, and I've been here on and off for the last 30 years. I love the research environment over here in the States. It's very dynamic and been lucky enough to build up a, a great group of people here at Cedars-Sinai uh, Regenerative Medicine Institute that really focus on stem cells from both disease modeling and using stem cells for the treatment of neurological diseases. The institute I run, though, actually covers the breadth of different uh, areas of stem cell biology. We have about 140 people in the institute. and We model things from Crohn's disease, making gut, cells from, from stem cells through to eye diseases and diseases of the brain. So we have quite a broad sweep at the Institute, and then my lab focuses almost exclusively on neurological diseases. So that's a nice backdrop. Maybe we can talk about this paper you guys just pushed out into cell stem cell. Really nice work. It's a bit of arcane neurological disease, maybe not a headline disease that people are really aware of. So could you explain what you were focused on there, psychomotor retardation and the gene deficiency that underlies this defect or this uh, condition in the patients you were studying? Yeah, and this is um, actually where the field for disease modeling seems to be, has, has gone as these rare diseases, monogenetic diseases are the ones which are quite are much simpler to model because we know the problem. I actually started off in this field with a disease called spinal muscular atrophy, which is a rare disease in children that causes the loss of motor neurons. And I got involved with a family who had this other rare disease, which is really based on a, a receptor, a transporter that sits on cells throughout the body that transports thyroid hormone or T3 into cells. And this is the MCT8 transporter. And so children born with a mutation of this transporter end up with severe mental retardation and do very poorly and have a terrible really prognosis for life of being uh, mentally retarded and physically disabled because they can't really get this thyroid hormone into the cells in their body. So we didn't know very much about this disease. It's rare. It's maybe only 150 children in the world. 
but we were lucky enough to get blood samples from two patients with the disease. We made iPS cells, which as you all know, are reprogramming back in time, so made these pluripotent iPS cells. And then asked the question, first of all, when we make neurons from these iPS cells, is the transporter, because we knew the transporter would be missing, are the neurons affected? Because obviously it's a neurological disease, a lot of it. So the first part of this paper was rather surprising to us. We made the IPS, we turned them into neurons, we showed that they didn't have this transporter at all, so they couldn't take out T3, thyroid hormone, and guess what? No effect. The neurons were just dandy. They developed normally, they looked pretty normal in the dish, uh, we couldn't see any differences. So we kind of scratched our heads for a while and thought, well, this is strange, it's not what we expected. And then, of course, we realized that for the thyroid hormone to get into the brain, it has to get through the blood-brain barrier, and this MCT8 transporter is also in the blood-brain barrier. So together with a colleague of mine that I've worked with a lot in Wisconsin, Eric Schuster, we collaborated, developed a blood-brain barrier model by, from the same cells, we made endothelial cells of the blood-brain barrier and put those on the other side of a transwell from the neurons. And the long story short, and what the paper really showed is, while the neurons can respond to T3 and function normally, if you then try and get T3 through the blood-brain barrier, it just doesn't get through. The thought is that if you can get T3 through the blood-brain barrier, it should affect the neurons nicely because they seem to respond. So it's really set up a whole new way of looking at the disease by showing the blood-brain barrier is affected, but that the neurons actually can respond to T3. And in fact, we're working on a number of different avenues now to get T3 into the brain with these patients. It's fascinating to go from the thinking of this as being a a neural disease. This is a problem with maybe a receptor, the transporter at the level of the neuronal cell membrane, but then to switch your thinking to the level of just getting the hormone into the brain in the first place to be able to have its effects. Where do you see this kind of study and this modeling actually having other potential applications? For this particular disease, we were thinking of gene therapy, so we were trying to focus on getting the MCTA transported into the brain, but actually it's changed our thinking, and we're now thinking, well, if we can just get it into the endothelial cells, that might be enough. So it's changed our way of trying to treat the disease. There was a companion paper that came out in Cell Reports with Leslie Thompson and her group at Irvine, so if you ask questioners, you know, bigger impact. I think this modeling the blood-brain barrier, and in that paper, They modeled it. We're on that paper as well. We're a collaborator. Huntington's disease. They took iPS cells from Huntington's patients. And again, we published quite widely in that area as well, a number of papers with a consortium. And they showed a blood-brain barrier deficit directly uh, in Huntington's disease patients' iPS cells, which showed, you know, for the first time in Huntington's that there's a deficit there as well. So it's pointing the direction in other neurological diseases that may be real problems with the drugs or with compounds getting through the blood-brain barrier, and that's affecting disease progression and, and onset. So in terms of treatment, is an idea here, in terms of how you would administer treatment, would you start it at birth or in utero even to try and enable the transport? Or you were saying gene therapy so that you could restore. But uh, fundamentally, in order to avoid the complications of the disease, would you need to have chronic treatment of it in order to facilitate this? Or is this only a narrow developmental window that you need this TH-dependent neuronal maturation? That's a great question, and we honestly don't know the answer to that yet. I think it's mainly affecting boys, this disease, and the idea would be to try the gene therapy in boys who are already, you know, eight, nine years old and affected to see if just by getting T3 in, we may activate some regenerative pathways that we're missing because there was, the brain has basically been starved of T3. But ultimately, yeah, we'd like to get in much earlier, and to be honest, if it's an endothelial gene therapy approach, it's a lot easier than getting it 
the gene therapy into every cell of the brain. So we're quite excited by the potential of this, and we're actually working with collaborators, one of them is Brian Kaspar, to help move this gene therapy approach forward. When you say easier, you mean because uh, administering the gene or like reprogramming, I mean, could you elaborate? How would you go about it? How would it be uh, easier in the case of endothelium? Well, if there was a way to, the endothelium is obviously connected to your whole blood vascular supply. So by putting the gene, if you use a virus, an AAV maybe, or a way to infect endothelial cells, you can basically label nearly the entire endothelial and blood vessel system of the brain by just putting the virus into the circulating blood, right? You get all the vasculature labeled. Now, if we replace MCT8 and all the vasculature, then it should get into every nook and cranny in the brain, and that allows the T3 to flood into the neuron. To actually get the virus to every neuron, you've got to get across the blood-brain barrier. And that's possible, but it's more of a challenge. Sometimes you have to put the virus into the CSF, for instance, in order to get good distribution. I guess you don't worry about if you get, what is it, MCT8 into other endothelial cells elsewhere, not in the brain. It doesn't matter, right? There's no, like, liability of having the transgene in generic endothelium, or do you think that could be a potential complication? Yeah, what else does it do? Yeah, good question. But, of course, these children, there may be some peripheral effects. So so MCT8 is knocked out in every cell in the body. It's not selective to endothelial cells or neurons. So we think it could be a good thing. And, of course, we'll have to do preclinical studies, safety studies in animals, which is one of the routes we're going down, to show that we don't get any off-target effects of overexpression. But there are peripheral effects of the uh, lack of MCT8. And, in fact, T3 is accumulating in the blood because there's no receptors to take it out. We would think this would be a good thing, generally, to balance the ability of T3 to get into all tissues. Is this, this transporter very specific to T3, or is it a more general transporter? Another good question there. So here's where it's interesting. The mouse has a number of different transporters that get T3 into the brain, and the human only has a few of them, which is where people were led astray by mouse models. And this really comes down to the power of human IPS modeling. And it turns out that you know T3 can get into the mouse brain through another reporter transporter that humans just don't have. And that was confusing the field for a while. So now... This is a much cleaner model, and it's disease is relevant to the human biology, which I think is the power of IPS cells. That raises a complication in terms of like your readout. At the end of the day, when you're trying to see if you can rescue this dysfunction, it's hard to model it in an animal model. How do you go about seeing if, as you said, like globally, you've shown that it's a clear defect in the transport into the brain. How do you show that restoring that alone will rescue the psychomotor retardation, you know, lacking an animal model to give you that kind of meta level of readout. Yeah, what happened in the animal models is they had an MCT8 knockout, which didn't have much deficit, but when they, they actually knocked out that extra transporter I just talked about, OACTP8 it's called, which is another transporter, and then they saw kind of deficits in the mouse model as well. So that would be the model that we test the expression of the MCT8 transporter in and see if we get a reversal in the mouse model. Uh, that was our trick. It's not perfect because there are, there are other transporters even in the mouse, but it's, at least you have a, a phenotype in the mouse to test your uh, therapy against. To be honest, moving forward, the FDA now are considering these kind of models, and we're, we're getting better and better. I mean, this paper in cell stem cell was using a transwell, right, where you put the endothelial cells on one side and the neurons on the other. We're working now with more advanced techniques, tissue engineering, and microfluidic devices to get closer to the human physiology, and I think eventually those type of systems will be accepted by FDA as preclinical. Not yet, but eventually. So I think those are, that's the exciting area that this field is taking us in. 
You brought up the Huntington's issues with the blood-brain barrier as well. Can you expand on that a little bit more? I'd love to know how far-reaching this studying the blood-brain barrier, which really is not just a barrier to getting drugs into the brain, but also a, a barrier to hormone transport, to getting stuff into the brain that the brain necessarily needs. Yeah. And it was very interesting that the two papers so we actually, with the MCTA story, we didn't see any overall effects on blood-brain barrier function. So they made beautiful tight junctions. There was no problems with general drugs getting across. It was very specific to thyroid hormone. Everything else looked perfect. Now, in Leslie Thompson's paper, they found something different. They found a general deficit in the uh, blood-brain barrier that was probably caused by this mutant protein that's building up in endothelial cells. And H. Huntington's disease is caused by a trinucleotide repeat. It's a repeat disorder. And when you have these repeats, it clogs the cell up, it makes an abnormal Huntington protein. And it seemed like they weren't getting a specific T3 deficit like we did, thyroid hormone. But they saw an overall difference in permeability and in the barrier function when the Huntington protein was expressed that was not seen in controls. So there was a specific deficit in Huntington's, which may have, as you pointed out, you know, that may now be another area to look at for drug therapies for Huntington's is to try and modulate the blood-brain barrier function and corrected because it seems like it has a primary deficit caused by the mutation. It seems like you've clearly thought it through and you've got these preclinical models now, I guess, to get some proof of concept for our efficacy uh, to move into a phase one. Could you walk us through kind of the steps that your therapeutic approach might take over the next few years, what you envision? For the uh, gene therapy approach? Yes, I mean, I do, is here. I guess a broader question. You focus on this very rare group of patients. Is it you get like a orphan class for this, and you go after a trial, and it gets pushed through the FDA? I just like to know how something like this that affects such a small group of people goes into actual treatment or whatever kind of treatment for these rare patients. How do you go about that? It's very dependent, usually, on a foundation or a family who has resources to be able to push this through. It's tough to get the amount of money required to go through to a clinical trial. You also need a good partner who knows the field well and is able to make things happen and get these through the FDA. We've just uh, done this, the Luke Eric's disease or ALS. This is the other side of my lab, which I probably won't get a chance to talk about, but we basically take neural progenitors that secrete a growth factor called GDNF, and we're now putting them into patients with ALS. And that meant we had to do preclinical studies in mice and rats apply for an investigational new drug, or IND, to deliver these cells into the spinal cord of patients. We got that all the way through to an IND, and now we're in a trial with ALS patients. So I'm kind of using that template, along with collaborators like Brian Kaspar, to take MCTA. In this case, it's, it'll be a gene therapy approach. Think about the preclinical studies we need to do to get into this rare group of patients. It's a small group of patients, but it, if it works, it's proof of concept that this kind of approach can work for a specific mutation, it means that we could maybe apply it to other more common diseases that involve mutations. Every disease is different. It depends on the protein that's mutated, how big it is, has an effect to what you can package into a viral vector, and you know the side effects of overexpressing that protein is unique to each disease. So I think we have a good rationale for moving forward for this disease and the MCTA problem. Gene therapy is really wakening up now, and with CRISPR technology to be able to gene edit, you'll see more and more of these small trials going forward as proof of concept, and then we'll get into the bigger diseases once we you know, understand more about how to deliver these viruses, and maybe in these small groups where FDA you know, allows you to move a little faster, because like you said, it's an orphan disease. 
Yeah. And when you're dealing with something that's also based in a single mutation that is not a very small area of the genome that needs to be clipped out to be fixed, it's going to be a lot easier than something that's like multiple genes across the genome, multiple chromosomes. Exactly. When you have a target like this, I think it's ideal for either you know, gene therapy approaches or ASOs, you know, antisense oligonucleotides, where you can manipulate very specific pathways. They're going to lead the way, I think, in these gene therapy or gene editing approaches. This is just great. I mean, first off, to be finding out that there are people like you who are studying these very, these orphan diseases, continuing to push forward, finding ways that you can potentially help these groups of people. And I'm hoping that you can push forward to be able to get a viable therapeutic strategy on this. It would be pretty exciting. A good example is spinal muscular atrophy, where again, Brian Kaspar and groups at Columbus, Ohio have really pushed that field for a rare disease. They're having some very nice results. And with ASO, antisense oligonucleotides. So there are some examples popping up now where this is really starting to work and impact uh, some of these rarer diseases. Now, the problem with general neurological diseases is for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or ALS, only about 10% where we know the genetic target. And the other 90% are sporadic. Like you said, when it's sporadic, we don't know what the target is. That's when I'm feeling like maybe stem cells to replace cells makes more sense than targeting because we don't know what the target is. It's tough to know what kind of therapy to apply. You don't know the cause of the disease. But for the 10%, you'll start seeing trials coming up. Like for SOD1 mutation in ALS is very rare, but there are now clinical trials targeting that mutation in ALS patients that carry that mutation using both gene therapy and antisense oligonucleotide approaches. I think those are the, the cutting edge trials, but we then got to deal with this bigger problem of the sporadic, what we call sporadic neurological diseases. Maybe we can model them in the dish and that's what we're trying to do and then pick up where the, you know, what causes them. And that might be a way to new therapeutics via stem cell modeling as well. I had read something recently that you had mentioned, you know, that animal models, we've been using animal models for years and years, but they don't always do a great job of actually modeling the human disease. Like you mentioned the mouse model, it has multiple transporters that are at work that don't make it an easy way to model unless you can do the knockout version. And so your methodology of using these induced pluripotent stem cells in the dish, model to the disease, actually see what's happening. And then, as you said, maybe use the animals for safety to know whether or not the treatment, the potential therapeutic, is going to have any negative effects on patients. I totally agree. I don't think we should throw anyone out. I think we'll have an extra pillar in our toolbox, right? So we'll we'll use IPS humans to come up with targets. And then, of course, we'll try it in mice and at least see if there are any side effects. And the real models in mice are all based on that 10% of rare genetic cases of neurological disease. There's no model of sporadic Parkinson's, really, or sporadic ALS, because you don't know what causes it. Dalen, did you have a question? Well, yeah, I was just wondering, in terms of like ALS, I mean, I don't want to get too far afield here, but since it is your specialty, and while we have you here, that's kind of the idea there in this sporadic, as well as maybe the inherited. Is it also a kind of niche idea? I thought I'd heard that it was the astrocytes, and they're, you know, causing some, it's not cell autonomous. Is that true? Definitely, there's a big um, area of literature that suggests that the astrocytes are contributing to the disease. So you have a sick astrocyte that is making the disease go faster. I think we all think as well that there's something wrong with the motor neuron. The hope is that the astrocytes can play a role in slowing down degeneration or even reversing it maybe in some cases because they are an important component. So just to follow that thread of like a niche support idea, is there any evidence or any 
hypotheses out there that the blood-brain barrier, not just as a vehicle of things crossing it, but also providing like a direct paracrine, you know, there's this angiocrine idea. Is there any evidence that maybe the sporadic or even inherited forms might be secondary to a lack of some secreted, some secretome that's blood-brain barrier specific that may be nurturing or fostering progenitor expansion or whatever in the neural compartment? Do you have any ideas about that? Very interesting thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which you know, is we, to say, probably not, Dr. James. No, it's to say we're actually doing that right now. <laughs> uh, it's uh, very close to our hearts here. I think there was some evidence a few years back in animal models that the blood-brain barrier was disrupted in ALS. A number of groups reported it. Then they went into patients and they couldn't see anything. You know, when you look for blood-brain barrier deficit, what you really think of, if you inject a dye into the animal, it leaks right into the brain, and that's a deficit in the blood-brain barrier. But like you said, there are many more subtle things that happen with the blood-brain barrier that could chronically, over time, lead to degeneration of neurons. And I think exactly what you said, we should be testing that. We have the IPS lines now, and we can make endothelial cells, and I think that's a very active area. Just like for Huntington's, we may find a specific deficit in ALS that we've missed, and because it's endothelial, it's a nice target, like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. So if we can identify BDB deficits in ALS, I think whether it's the cause of the disease and sporadic, who knows, but we could at least with IPS model it and start investigating it. I think those are the important experiments that, and the very exciting experiments that we're doing now. And I'll say briefly, we have, um, we're currently making a thousand IPS lines from patients with ALS. Wow. That has to be quite a library. Yeah. And we're doing that with a group called Answer ALS. And you can go see the website. There's, this is a collaboration with Jeff Rothstein and myself and Mary Chikowicz and a large group of collaborators. And we're making iPS cells from these patients. We're differentiating, turning them into motor neurons. And then we're doing a lot of multiomics on those motor neurons to try and understand more about what ALS is, sporadic ALS. And at the same time, collecting very rich clinical data sets on every single patient that participates in this program. And then with help from, you know, big data groups trying to understand, can we segregate ALS into different categories based on the uh, IPS-derived motor neurons and ultimately try and develop, you know, specific treatments for clusters of ALS patients. And so that we can feed that into the blood-brain barrier program, that sort of information as well. Again, it's very exciting times and uh, there's a lot of activity both with Arthur ALS and, and, as you know, many other groups that you've interviewed on the podcast, like Kevin Egan and others are working as well actively trying to use IPS to find out more about these diseases, which are so difficult to model in animals. Well, you know, Dr. Svensson, I'm afraid you just doubled a poor postdoc's workload, or probably a whole army of postdocs, because not only are they going to have to get the neural now, but they might have to go after these BBBECs to uh, see if there's some kind of secondary effect of this ALS sporadic phenotype. So, I mean, it's yeah. incredible work, but uh, <laughs> that's impressive. A thousand patients or a thousand lines are you talking thousand patients and a thousand lines. So we're collecting oh. blood from, we're doing around 300 a year for the next, well, we've already done 300 and uh, it's in progress right now. And uh, that's our goal. Yeah. To collect a thousand lines. Kudos. That's quite ambitious. But if anybody can handle it, it's you and your group and your collaborators. Great work. Yeah, and we really want to make, just to say for, the idea is to make a portal and make this open source that, you know, I think we need uh, lots of people to access this information. And then we would also be able to provide the IPS lines to researchers to confirm, you know, ideas that come out of this, or they can get subsets of patients from us. So we want to make this a very open source, and it, the funding came, comes from lots of different places in order to make this happen. ALS Finding a Cure is a foundation that helped, Packard Foundation helped, even the NFL have contributed. So it was a very wide, broad consensus that this should be done, 
and now we're doing it and we want to provide it to the community once we've done it. And having the cell lines donated by individuals, what are you doing for a patient security for, you know, to make sure that it's everybody anonymous and it's just general life history information that is packaged along with the stem cells themselves? Great question. And this has been done with all the clinics. We're collecting from seven clinics across the country. And uh, they, the patients all sign consent forms and we protect the data. So there's no, it's all HIPAA compliant and we don't release names. Each patient actually gets a GUID, which is an individual identification number. But the patient identity is not released. It's just we get some details on progression rate, et cetera, of the disease. So there's a protection interface there. And it's, a, it's been very complicated. It took almost a year just to get all the work out how to get these consents and how to control the data, this clinical data in a way that we could all use it. So it's been a labor of love to get this far, but it's Jeff Rothstein and Merit Chukovic and others who really, and a big community, has made this happen. So we'll see. It's a big project and a big experiment, really. We'll see how we, what we end up with. <laughs> so exciting. It's wonderful to see so many scientists working together for a common cause and pushing toward understanding and finding cures. So we will not keep you any longer. Thank you so much for your time today. It's just been wonderful hearing about your work all the way from the MCT8 transporter to the blood-brain barrier and into ALS. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. And uh, it's a wonderful podcast. I really enjoyed it. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for listening. All right. That was Dr. Svensson. What a cheerful guy. Genuinely invested, enthusiastic about science, doing great things. Who would have thought, you know, again, one of these stories, I love talking to these guys because it's like, ah, oh, we were looking, we expected this and it didn't work. And then somehow yeah. it became a cell stem cell paper. So I love hearing the story and I'm green with envy. I want to choke him out as I say, why doesn't good stuff like that happen to me? But yeah, you can maybe it will. a better result for Dr. Svensson. You know, he, he's earned it. 30 years in the game, you get a few serendipitous moments in all that time and, and he's turning them into gold. Yeah. And I think there's just so much more to be learned about the blood brain barrier as well. You know, like the very beginning of the show, we're talking about it's barrierness, you know, it blocks things. But if we can learn how to manipulate it, how to fix the problems that are going on to get things that we want into the brain and keep the things we don't want out, this could have some major, major implications down the road for cognitive disease and disorders. I think it's exciting. And then also his, you know, his project where he's working on these thousand Mm. ALS stem cell lines. I mean, that is, it's huge. It's going to be amazing. Crazy. Understanding sporadic disease. I like it. It's good. Okay. But at this point, it is time for us to close the show. And let's do it with a good old stem cell podcast rant. This rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Although we don't know. You got to let us know if it does or if it doesn't. But anyway, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? You know, the blood brain barrier, it's like uh, the whole thing so beautifully described by you right there. It's a metaphor for this rant because there's certain things that this, this barrier that maybe our boy Trump could learn for. Be selective at the border. You don't build up a wall. If the blood brain barrier, we're so solid that it didn't let in all that TH, then, you know, you get some psychomotor retardation. And that's I think right. that that's what's going to happen to America. Psychomotor retardation of a type. The rant here is just General Trump. 
But I think we're going to focus this a little bit on what a fool this man is. What's with this whole Twitter thing going on? It just Cafefe. happened. Hey, right I mean, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> I think you can start any coffee. <laughs> Psychomotor coffee. <laughs> if at any point I just need to start a sentence and can't remember where it was supposed to go <laughs> i'm just going to say confefe from just now on out there it's a nice <laughs> like a, um it's a nice little to break up a sentence you know what was i said right. confefe. Confefe. Yeah, i mean the the, yeah. the bottom line is my man has an issue and we know and we don't need to elaborate but what i mean I don't know where to start with my anger level. Is it the Twitter? Number one, why is he still tweeting? The (laughs) post-rant rant rant here is why the Kofefe thing is such a big deal and everyone's going crazy. I mean, it'll be a week old by the time everyone hears this, but I I bet people are still talking about it because the, the whole media response to his inane and foolish antics is almost making it worse. So this isn't just about Trump. This is about how he's nucleating a whole world of just time wasted and nonsense. Yeah, well, as everyone on Twitter was, you know, every once in a while you need a good laugh. You need to relieve some steam. And this, it really was, there's a actress comedian on Twitter. I follow Sarah Benicasa and she was like, this has been one of the best improv. Yes. And exercises I've ever been involved in, <laughs> you know, everyone on Twitter is coming up with some new variation on Kofefe and it was fun. But at the same time, it was covering up news about a massive attack at the embassies in Kabul. It was also covering up news of the United States leaving the Paris Accord, the Climate Accord. It was also covering up news of the United States having missile tests with relation to Mm. what's going on in North Korea. So at the time that everybody's going off about Kofefe, there were actually some very serious bits of news that nobody was talking about. Yeah, and maybe that's the master plan. We all think he's a real clown, but maybe while he's throwing up all these red herrings, some real bad stuff is going on in the political landscape. So people, come on, let's keep our eye on the ball. Trump, get off of Twitter, fine. I mean, I can hate you on that. But the rest of us have to, you know, stop taking such glee and delight. We all know he's an idiot, but let's, you know, quit rejoicing in it and and get (laughs) serious. And I say that as a real armchair quarterback here. I'm not doing much myself. So I apologize. I'm sorry, but I'm also angry. And I or if you see some kind of massive meme forming on Twitter or Facebook that, you know, that something funny that was said or some weird thing that Spicer said or whatever, you can play with that idea. But also at the same time, go looking for what is actually happening in the news. Don't get stuck as like a cat playing with a laser light, you know? You can't be that. We're the, we're the cats Come right on. now. Playing that laser light that you're never going to catch. We're never going to catch it. You got to leave the laser light alone and turn around and scratch the eyes out of the person with the laser. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so be a cat, but be like a non-declawed, angry cat. Vicious. I'm a, I'm a tiger. Cujo cat. Be a tiger. <laughs> All right. That's it for the rant. The conclusions are be a vicious type. That's right. Do it. And everyone, yeah. send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com.
All right, Dalen, that's episode 93 under our belts. This is the Stem Cell Podcast. Everyone be sure to tune in for our next episode. Thanks, Dalen. Thank you, Kiki, and thank you all.